Welcome to Common Ground Church, Rwandabosh, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in scripture and dependent on God's Spirit. Jonah is an Old Testament book that is rich in imagery, the sovereign hand of God, how God guides those who believe in him, and his heart for the nations. Please continue listening for today's message. The Book of Jonah, a tale about God's great mercy and justice, a tale about a reluctant follower, a tale about a lost city, a city of destruction and great evil, one that had brought great harm to God's people for a long time. God had seen Nineveh's sin and it was vast, but God's love is infinite and his mercy boundless. God, the creator of the world, the name of prophets and kings, chose a messenger. Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh and speak my message. But Jonah rebelled. He would not follow God if it was to serve people he wished God hated. Jonah ran in the opposite direction, away from God, away from God's call, and away from God's mission. But God wasn't done with Jonah. He called a great storm over the ship and caused Jonah to confess his rebellion before the very types of people he didn't think deserved God's grace. The sailors prayed to God for forgiveness and did as Jonah instructed, and tossed him overboard, leaving him to drown. When the waters stilled, the sailors rejoiced in God, praising his name and not their false gods. But God wasn't done with Jonah. He called for a vessel of salvation in a great fish to swallow his chosen servant. For three days, Jonah was in the fish, where he weighed up God's sovereignty and grace in light of his own failings. After which, God called the great fish to spit Jonah onto the land, alive and safe. God wasn't done with Jonah. Once again, he called his chosen messenger to take his message to the great city of darkness. This time, Jonah obeyed. Walking partway into the city and declaring, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown a puny message from a reluctant prophet. But God's message is mightier than the messenger. An eight-word sermon and a city turned to God. They called for fasting and repentance from the greatest to the least of them, having just an inkling that this great God of justice may be great in mercy too. When God saw them acknowledging and repenting of their sinfulness, he relented and showed mercy. An infuriated Jonah, angry that God wasn't going to smite his enemies, went and sulked on a hill, hoping that God would still destroy the city. But God wasn't done with Jonah. He called a plant to grow up overnight to shade his sulking serpent. Relieved from the heat, Jonah was glad for the plant, but God called for a worm to consume the plant, and when the sun rose, called the sun to beat down on Jonah's head. Upset that the plant had died, Jonah wished he himself was dead. God asked Jonah how he could have so much compassion for the life of a plant that lived for a day, while wishing that God would kill 120,000 lost people and their city. The Book of Jonah, a tale about a follower who wanted the very mercy he needed from God withheld from others. A tale within a tale of God's great mercy and our great need. Our reading is Jonah chapter 3, Verses 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, 
according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Ian. For those of you who don't know me, you might be visiting. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so good to be with you this evening, carrying on our Jonah series. How amazing was worship this evening? It was so good, so powerful to be reminded of the goodness of God and, and the songs that we sing. This morning, first meeting, we were worshiping, and worship was also amazing. And I looked down, and there's little Nathan, almost two, with one hand up, singing like this. I think what happened is he looked around and saw everybody else doing it, so he just started doing it. So just got to get that out of him by his teenage years, looks around, sees what everybody else is doing, and then just does it. <laughs> but um, I'm taking it to work of God's power, and he was worshiping with all his might at the age of just under two. Um, so we are in week four of Jonah. Jane will be finishing off uh, week five next week. And uh, it's been an incredible journey through this book that, that has shown us. And we're kind of getting to the halfway mark, really, of the book this evening. And, and it's been this journey of us realizing that there is a sovereign creator God at work in this world and that he is writing a story and that a person like Jonah and, and the rest of creation, a city like Nineveh, finds their story in, in God's story. And even when someone like Jonah would actively choose to rebel and run from God, even then God works that rebellion into the tapestry of the story that he is putting together. And we, we see that God is sovereign even over the rebellion and the running of Jonah, and that, that even in that, God is at work and doing something. And that it makes sense for those of us who are Christ followers, it actually makes sense for all of creation to make sense of our stories, our lives, in light of the biggest story, God's story, who He is, what He's doing in this world, and what He declares to be true. That's been our journey in the book of, of Jonah this far. And um, this evening, we are going to look at a reluctant messenger. We're gonna see Jonah go from a runaway messenger shift to being a reluctant messenger. And he's gonna go with a message into the city of Nineveh. And as we see this reluctant messenger go into the city of Nineveh, we're gonna see the power of his message. We're gonna see the power of his message at work in one of the greatest moments in ancient biblical history of God's power outside of the people of Israel. 
We're gonna see God's power at work this evening. And as we do that, as we see this reluctant message, messenger going into a city with a, a powerful message from God, and we see the power of God at work in a city, I think two things are going to happen for us. One, I think those of us who are far from God, feel far from God, are distant from God, whether that is we've never encountered Jesus, through to it's been a long journey of, of, of feeling disconnected from Him. I think tonight's gonna come as an encouraging message for people who are far from God. And then the second, the second thing I think God's gonna do this evening is that he's going to challenge those of us who are a bit more seasoned in our faith, those of us who have been Christ followers for a while, and that he's gonna call us and challenge us to some stuff. And so as we look at this chapter, as we, we look at a reluctant messenger with a powerful message and God's power being at work, we're gonna see a God of second chances. We're gonna see the power of his message and we're gonna see what it means to hear and respond to God's message correctly. I'm going to pray and then we're going to get started. Father, I ask that as we dive into your word tonight, into the book of Jonah, that you would speak loudly and clearly. Week in and week out, we gather as your people to hear from you, Father. God, I pray that our hearts would be open and receptive. Father, that no matter where we find ourselves in our relationship with you, whether we feel distant or far off or very familiar, Father, I pray that you would challenge us, you would speak to us, you would encourage us this evening. God, would our hearts be soft, would our hearts be receptive, and would we be full of faith that we will encounter the living God this evening? Would your words be spoken? Amen. So let's look at that first one, a God of second chances. Jonah 3, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah's been through a lot. Jonah's been through a lot in the story up until this point. He's experienced a lot. He's, he, he is a man who received the word of God. He is a man who ran from God. He's a man who jumps onto a boat to go in the opposite direction to God. He experienced God's loving intervention and discipline as God hurled a tempest upon the sea. He experienced the tempest. He saw the panic of sailors. He saw himself with only one option being thrown overboard. He's thrown overboard and he finds himself in the inevitable place of a Christ follower who runs from God. God, alone and in a tempest. And I love how last week he, he describes in his prayer of repentance the reality that he was at the bottom of the ocean with his head entangled in seaweed. It's where he finds himself as he runs from God. He's experienced God's unlikely rescue as God appoints a big fish to swallow him and rescue him from the depths of the ocean. He experiences three days in the belly of this fish being slowly digested as he repents before God, going, God, I'm sorry, I'm humbled. I see the futility of running from you. I see your kindness and throwing the tempest upon me. It means that I have encountered you freshly. I see your goodness in letting me be swallowed by this fish. God, you are good, you are a rescuer, and I am sorry and I am humbled. And then God calls the fish to vomit Jonah out on a beach. And Jonah is vomited out on the beach. He probably smelt a bit like slightly digested sushi. That's probably what's going on there in that moment. So when we say that Jonah's been through a lot, Jonah has been through a lot in this story. But it's so ironic 
Because as you read these verses in chapter four, verses one through three, they are almost identical to chapters one, verses one through three. We're almost back right at the beginning of the story. So much has taken place in the life of Jonah, but yet we're right back where we started, except for two words, or for a few words that God speaks that are different. The word of God came to Jonah for a second time, for a second time. And what's incredible is what, what, what happened here is that God's heart hasn't changed for the city of Nineveh. God's heart hasn't changed for Jonah. Amazingly, even in Jonah's running, God's heart hasn't changed. And God's heart for Jonah, God's love for Jonah has been displayed in his loving discipline of Jonah, in his merciful rescue of Jonah. And now it's being displayed in him restoring Jonah's call to him. Jonah, I will continue to use you. I said that in week two. God could have been done with Jonah and said, I'm done. I'm gonna find a faithful person who's obedient to me, who will follow my ways, but God's not done with Jonah. And this entire journey, God didn't need it. Jonah didn't, I mean, God didn't need this journey. Nineveh didn't need this journey. Jonah chose this journey and needed this journey for his heart to become more aligned to the heart of God. It's fascinating that we find ourselves at what feels like the beginning of the story again. Because the reality is that the story could have ended here at this point of the book. It could have ended here with, with God saying to Jonah, I'm done with you. But what's fascinating is that this part of the book could have also been the start of the journey. This is, could have been where Jonah's journey and story started. And the only reason that this isn't the end of Jonah's story is because he serves a God of second chances. And the only reason it isn't the start of Jonah's story is because he chose disobedience to run and to flee at the word of God. But if he had chosen obedience, I wonder if the first half of Jonah would have been necessary at all. And we would have picked up and Jonah obeyed the word of God and went to Nineveh. Jonah has been through so much because of the disconnect in his heart. And he's experienced what Paul speaks of in light of Christ, Ephesians 2 verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Jonah didn't deserve to be saved. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. Not a result of your works. The only thing that Jonah's done is run and flee from God so that no one may boast. His only boast is that I smell like digested sushi. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What Jonah is experiencing here is a God of second chances, a God of mercy who prepared good works for Jonah to walk in before Jonah was even born. And God is saying, will you step into those works, Jonah? I'm giving you another chance. I'm restoring my calling and my purposes and the works that I want to give you, Jonah, to you. And if you walk in them, you will see my power at work in your life and through your life in the city of Nineveh. And Jonah's heart is starting to change. 
Jonah hears the word of God come to him for a second time and you see his heart starting to shift from one who flees to one who follows, from one who's trying to write his own story to one who is willing to follow the story God has written for his life. He's shifted from one who is full of pride to one who is being humbled. He's shifting from one who chooses disobedience to one who chooses obedience. And we read this in verse three. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Again, I said in week two, some of you might be grappling around whether it is worth being obedient to God or not. And I would hope that you've settled that journey, whatever it is that God is calling you to, so that you don't have to go through the whole first half of the book of Jonah and that your story can start here at obedience to the Father. It is incredible that God has prepared good works for each one of us to do before the day we were created. It has profound and wonderful implications for our lives. A few years ago, I had a shoulder operation. I'd torn my shoulder here and I couldn't lift it above my head, which was a bit problematic. But I'd also damaged both shoulders playing sport in school. And this shoulder wasn't working so well either. And I was sitting in the consultation room and the doctor was going, you know what, that shoulder, it's kind of not working the way it should be, but you're you're middle-aged and I don't know if it's worth the operation because you've only got so many years ahead of you. And, but this shoulder we probably have to fix, but we'll see how much we do because, you know, how much do you actually need to use it? I'm like, and I'm not offended that he's basically saying, I'm just gonna leave you broken for the rest of your life. What offended is he called me middle-aged. This is a few years ago. I'm like, who are you calling middle-aged? I'm like 35 plus, I'm only 40 next year. What's going on here? Like, how dare you call me middle-aged? What? Like, come on. And it's funny because increasingly in our society, we see middle-aged crisis becoming a big thing, but so much more, we're starting to see quarter-life crisis. And the crisis in life just gets younger and younger and younger. It's like, I'm at crisis. I think the problem with middle age crisis, quarter life crisis or crisis is that we lose sight and faith that God's got good things for us to do. And we look back over our lives and we go, that's what I've done. And we look at them critically, maybe. And then we turn to the future and we go, I really wanna make this count. And we take on the burden of seeking out and trying to find a meaningful life before us. When Jesus would say, I have written a journey for you and I've got good works for you to step into. Do you trust me and do you believe me? Quarter life crisis, midlife crisis, whatever stage of life crisis is an act of faithfulness, faithlessness and disbelief that God's got something for you. How many times do I sit with a student at the end of their studies in tears? I don't know what to do. I'm so confused. I'm struggling. I don't know. And there's this anxiety around every single life-altering decision is going to be made between a December and a January in their life. And it's a loss of sight. God's got good works for you to step in and do. Will you follow me? Will you walk in obedience to my ways and my calling? God cares about you. God's got you. God's got plans for you and they are good. Will you walk in them is the question this evening. So we serve a God of second chances who restores, even when we run away, will restore the calling he has for us. We see that in the life of Jonah. 
And then we see Jonah walk in obedience and move towards the city of Nineveh. And, and as he does this, as he declares this message in the city of Nineveh, we see the power of his message, the power of God's message. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth, Jonah began to go into the city going day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloths from the greatest of them to the least of them. So Jonah obeys God, goes into the city and declares the message of God. So this three days journey thing, it trips people up. Some people go, there was no city in ancient times that big three days, so therefore the book of Jonah must be fraudulent. But what we see is that's not how people would have read this phrase. This is a phrase denoting a huge city by their standards with huge political and economic power behind it. It's, it's not a phrase to be taken literally. We see it used in other parts of the scriptures to describe big cities, and these are all cities that we, we know existed, and, so, and, and outside of scripture literature. And there are a few reasons that this might exist, but also the reason that we don't see it as a literal thing is most cities at the time were actually, their size was determined by their circumference, not the diameter. This is a phrase, so where does the phrase come from? Well, when you move towards a big city of that day that had economic, political influence and was a large city with a large population, there was a a kind of way in which you would approach that city, especially if you were a prophet with a message or a political power or wanting to do business with it, is there would be this thing called the day of arrival where you would arrive at the city and settle in. Then there would be a day of um, going before the authorities and stating your business. And then the day three would be the day of doing your business and probably departure. And that is probably something of where this phrase come from, meaning a big, powerful, political city of influence. Basically, what the book of Jonah is trying to tell us, this wasn't some backwater little town. This was a major city with major influence. And so Jonah might be being obedient, but what we see in the person of Jonah is that he is still a reluctant messenger. There is still a part of his heart that isn't fully aligned. What has happened and shifted in Jonah's heart in that journey is that he has realized that disobedience against God as those who want to follow him, know him and enjoy him is futile and that even reluctant obedience is better than disobedience. And so we have this reluctant prophet go into the city going, I will be obedient to you. And I want us to hear that, that that reluctant obedience is far better than disobedience. Reluctant obedience is far better than disobedience because reluctant disobedience, I mean, reluctant obedience is actually still an act of faith. Reluctant obedience is when we go, God, there is a disconnect in my heart. You are calling me to this thing. You want me to go in this way, say no to this thing, say yes to this thing. And my heart really doesn't want to. But you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna choose to believe that the problem and the disconnect is not in the heart of God, but in my heart and that your ways are good and that your ways are true and that you will never lead me into anything that is evil or bad or dangerous for, well, maybe dangerous, but not bad for me, not bad for me. Your ways are good. Your ways are true. The problem doesn't rest in you and your heart. The problem rests in mine. So as an act of faith, I'm gonna choose obedience and I'm gonna follow you and I'm gonna walk in your ways and I'm gonna hope that my heart follows. Reluctant obedience is far better than disobedience. It is an acknowledgement of who God is. It's an acknowledgement of who we are. And it's an act of faith and trust. 
This disconnect in, in Jonah's heart is explicitly stated in chapter four after the, the people of Nineveh respond positively to God's message. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God. He's just complaining. God, I knew you were gonna rescue them. I knew you were gonna be merciful to them. This is why I didn't wanna come. They do not deserve this. They do not, and there's this disconnect in his heart. But as a reluctant messenger, he still goes with the words and the message of God. He goes with the words and message of God. Verse two, um, God says to Jonah, go and call out against it the message that I tell you. So part of Jonah's obedience is that he needs to go with the very message of God. And Jonah, it then says in verse three of Jonah that he went according to the word of the Lord. So this reluctant messenger goes into the city of Nineveh going, I am going to be obedient even though I am reluctant. And he is not disobedient to the message of God. He actually goes with the message of God. And because of these verses, we know that he didn't say less than what God told him to say that he went with the very words of God into the city. And these words, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, are, is probably a summary statement that captures the central key elements of the message of Jonah as he walked through that city. I don't think, we don't think it was the fullness of the message for a few reasons. One, the king and the people of Nineveh knew which God was judging them, that it was the God of Jonah, that it was Yahweh, and you wouldn't get that from just these eight words. They also knew the nature of what they were being judged for, that it was for, specifically for their violence against people and their evil. And so there's this, this reality that this is probably not the fullness of the message, but captures the heart and the central part of the message and all the elements of the message that Jonah brought to the city. And this message is a message of judgment. This message is a message of judgment. The message is, God of the universe has decided that in 40 days, destruction is coming upon this city. It's a message of judgment. And what's interesting is that I think we, can, we struggle with this idea and we think, oh, he must be a grumpy prophet or God must be a grumpy God in the Old Testament to be bringing this message of, of judgment and, and we see God as ju judgmental or prophets as judgmental or the Old Testament as judgmental but it's actually a crazy way of thinking about this moment because what you have is you have the creator of the universe, the one who made all things, the one who had a garden in which he said, this is very, very good. Creation is very, very good. And in that statement, what the creator God is saying is that this, this is aligned to my very nature and character. You see, justice is not some random thing out there. Justice is the very nature of who God is. And when God says, I am good, he's saying everything that I believe, everything that I am, and the way in which I intended things to be done is good. And everything outside of that is an act of injustice. And when God looks over his creation and his eyes settle on Nineveh, he sees great violence, he sees great oppression, he sees great evil, and he goes, this is offensive to my very nature and character. This is not good. And so what he does is as a, 
as any good judge would, who understands what is good and true, he casts a judgment. We should not be offended that God brings a message of judgment to the people of Nineveh. We should be offended if God didn't bring a message of judgment to the city of Nineveh. It would be like a judge sitting before a, mur a violent murderer, a judge sitting before a violent murderer and going, you know what, the paperwork's pretty hectic if I condemn you. It's pretty hard work. You know, just go. Just go before I change my mind. Keep going and doing your violence. Keep going. That's an act of injustice. And there's this impressive, brutal city, oppressing people, causing great harm. And God, in His justice, brings a message of judgment to them and says, enough, enough. And what's amazing is this reluctant messenger with a message of judgment goes into the city of Nineveh. They have the most profound and powerful response, verse five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. I love that. I love that there is a reluctant messenger who, who really doesn't want the message to land. I love the reality that it's not a pleasant message like, hey, you guys are great, but can you change a few things? It's like, nope, your city's done in 40 days. Reluctant messenger and a message like that and the power of God is unleashed in a city. And what's so incredible about that is it reveals to us and shows that the power of God's message is not in the messenger, but in the fact that it's God's message. And it, when we speak the words of God, the power of God is behind them to even change a city like the city of Nineveh. The power is not in the messenger. The power is in the fact that it is the message of God to the city of Nineveh. And the power of God is at work in that. Our words matter. What we say matter. We need to understand the message of God. Our words really do matter. Jonah's words matter matter. And as Christ followers, we are those who will wake up every single day. We'll wake up tomorrow, God willing, and we will go about our days and we will give ourselves whatever it is, the good works that God has called us to, or we'll be running and we'll go on that journey, but we will wake up tomorrow and we will bump into a whole bunch of people. We will bump into the people who make our coffee. We'll bump into people who we work with. We'll bump into people randomly. We will bump into a whole bunch of people. And as ambassadors of Christ, we go with the message of Christ every single day. And it is not enough to go, hey, I'm gonna be a really nice person and people will understand who Jesus is. I'm gonna walk in the character of Christ and then people will come to Christ. No, our words matter. We need to speak the message Paul says this in Romans, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Now we might not all be preachers, but we are all sent ones. 
It is beautiful. On a Sunday, we gather together, we worship. And what happens is as we worship and as we sit under the Word of God and as we're with the people of God, something starts to happen in us. Our faith should start to rise as we sing and we worship. We're reminded of who God is. We're reminded of His message. We're reminded of His mercy. We're reminded of His kindness towards us. We feel our hearts soften. We feel our faith rise and we start to go, not these things, God, these things. You, Father, and, our, and we're, we're reorientated to what is important, real, and true in this world as we gather together and we encourage each other and we spur each other on and we should come alive in the gathered space in ways that we don't come alive in any other space. That's the power of the gospel at work in this community on a Sunday as we sit under the message of God with the power of God. That is our experience as a community. But that experience is meant to catapult us, energize us and send us out of this place with fresh faith, passion in the message of Jesus. And that what everybody in our lives needs more than anything else from us is the message of Jesus. And the message of Jesus at the center of it, well, a huge part of the message of Jesus is the coming judgment. Is a coming judgment. Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh and says, in 40 days you'll be overthrown. We don't know the time frame, but we do know that there is a day where Jesus will return and that he will throw, overthrow all of human history and bring about justice for every act of evil, violence, and oppression and disconnect that we've lived in between us and God. That is a part of the Christian message, which is why at the center of the Christian message is a cross. The cross is an act of judgment. The cross is an act of God saying, I am going to withhold my justice. I am not uphold my justice. I'm not gonna be a God who winks at sin. I'm not gonna be a God who winks at evil. I'm not gonna be a God who, who enjoys or revels in or allows injustice. And he takes, the, at the center is this cross and Jesus, God himself would hang upon that cross where the fullness of God's justice would be upheld. And we go with this wonderful, incredible message that says, you've, got, you've, really, you've really got this incredible opportunity and moment to experience a God who is patient, loving, gentle, kind, and gracious and merciful. Look at Him hanging on a cross. Look at what He did so that we could step into relationship with Him. He is a God who has made a way for us to know Him and enjoy Him. And it's not done by our works, but by His work. He did it. And there will either be justice at the cross for you or there will be justice at that day when Jesus returns. You don't need to know a lot to share the message of God. If you are a Christ follower, you have responded to the message of God. And if there is any, even though there is justice and urgency and, and the reality that God is coming to wrap up human history and there is a time now where we get to depend and throw ourselves on the finished work of Jesus, even though that exists, even though that's real, our, our heart should never be cold as we declare the message. Our heart should never be harsh as we declare the message. And I know that we struggle because there are so many, when we talk about judgment and, and the reality of God overthrowing history and bringing justice, we can struggle with that because of how so many people have done it with a heart that is hard and cold and mean and fear-inducing. And the only way that that can happen is if we're like Jonah, is if we are, are reluctant in that we go, I don't, I don't think these people deserve this. 
And there's a, we've forgotten of the mercy and grace that God has placed in our own lives. We've forgotten our own rescue. We've forgotten that moment where we saw Jesus for who he is for the first time and the goodness and the grace and the mercy that he showed us. How wonderful it was to be able to have a place to bring the ugliness in our hearts, the ugliness we see ourselves, to have a place to bring that and lay it down at a foot of the cross and experience the Spirit come upon us and, and say, you are forgiven, you are now a son and daughter. We've forgotten the beauty of the rescue in such a way that our hearts are cold and harsh in the way that we share this message or we're apathetic towards all the other people in our lives who need the rescue of God. 1 Corinthians 2 says this. Paul, speaking of how he shared the message, the man who wrote most of the the bulk of the New Testament, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I think we struggle sometimes to share our faith because we go, oh, am I gonna say it right? How's this person gonna respond? I better get my words right. I better get the theology right because if I don't get it all right, go with the simple message of Jesus, who He is and what He's done and what that's meant in your life. Go with the message and the words of Jesus and you will experience the power of God at work in that. You are the messenger. The power doesn't rest in you. The power rests in the message. Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You can step into, you can speak this message to the hardest hearted person and you can speak this message into the hardest places in this world and it will take root because it is a message that goes with the very power of the living God. What are you gonna do tomorrow morning when you wake up? Who's the person that you're gonna say the name of Jesus to? You know what I love about Monday morning? What did you do this weekend? You've got a lot of options. One of them could be, I went to church. What? You go to church? Yes. And let that be the starting point of a wonderful conversation where you might experience the power of God at work in you, in and through your life, in someone else's life. There's an invitation for us to be messengers of the goodness of God. And then finally, hearing and responding to God's Words, hearing and responding to God's words. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. I don't know if you've noticed it, um, but there is a great irony through the book of Jonah that those who are closest to God Someone like the person of Jonah who is a prophet of God, he stewards the words of God, he has experienced both personally and corporately the goodness, the kindness, the mercy, the grace and the presence of God in his life and in his community. It is a person like him that has responded with the greatest levels of disobedience and heart disconnect from God. And the great irony I'm speaking about is that those who were furthest from God, who neither knew Him or trusted in Him, never heard of Him, are those who respond with the highest levels of faith, obedience, and trust in God. There's a great irony that those closest to God in the story of Jonah don't respond 
to God's message and words the way that they should, while those who are furthest respond appropriately to the words and message of, of Jesus. And so I said there would be a challenge for us who are seasoned Christ followers, and I don't want to put a number on what it means to be a seasoned Christ follower. I've been following Jesus for about 25 years. There are people in this room who probably double that number. There are people in this room who might halve that number. But when I say seasoned, you've, you've been walking with Jesus for a while. And maybe, just maybe, you've become a sleepy, dulled Christ follower. I feel like there's a challenge coming out of the irony that we see in the book of Jonah to those of us who might be sleepy Christ followers. Whether we've been one for one year or 90 years, we can become a sleepy Christ follower. How do you know if you are a sleepy Christ follower? You switched off when I started challenging sleepy Christ followers. <laughs> You're probably not listening to me right now then you know that you're a sleepy Christ follower. Yeah, I've heard this. I'm not a sleepy Christ. I'm not one of those. Because the opposite of a sleepy Christ follower is a Christ follower who goes, God, I'm ready. I'm here. Speak. Speak through your word. God, what does your spirit want to say? Hey, I know that I can read a, t a verse a hundred times on the hundredth and one time. It can come alive to me in ways that it's never come alive to me. That I can hear things again and there's still work you want to do. There's still acts of obedience or surrender or repentance that you want to take place in my life. God, I'm ready. What is it that you're going to say? Doesn't matter who's speaking, doesn't matter who's singing, doesn't matter who's, who's in front of me speaking the words of God, doesn't matter what's going on around me, if it's the Word of God, I'm ready to listen and to hear. I'm not dull. I want to experience you, Jesus. That's the opposite of a sleepy Christ follower. And I think there's some things in the book of Jonah that will help us diagnose if we're a sleepy Christ follower. The first one is, have you struggled to relate to Jonah? You might go, hey, God has never spoken to me audibly. God has never spoken to me audibly. He's never sent me off on a mission. Therefore, I'm kind of off the hook. And I went and I picked the biggest Bible I could find in my bookshelf for this point to say, God has spoken to you loudly and clearly. And a sleepy Christ follower goes, oh, not the word of God again, that thing. Versus someone who goes, there is life here. There is truth here. There is power here. There is transforming encounter with the living creator of the universe to be found in here. And there's enough for a thousand lifetimes of a Christ follower. There's enough here that I need to be obedient to grow in and start to believe and live out in my life. And I will never arrive and I will never be done until the day I breathe my last breath and I am with Jesus. God has spoken clearly. Is God's word alive to you? Otherwise, you might be a sleepy Christ follower. The third way is that, and this is a dangerous one that I think many of us can slip into, is we believe we're getting it mostly right. I'm not that bad. I kind of know what God needs from me. I'm kind of doing what it is. And like Jonah, we're going, I'm nothing like the people of Nineveh. I'm nothing like the people of Nineveh. I'm, I'm not like them at all. I don't need what they need. I've graduated from that. They are so far gone. I think some of us through this journey have maybe gone, I'm nothing like the person of Jonah. 
I'm not disobedient like him. I've never had my runaway moments. I'm nothing like him. I don't need what Jonah needs. And I think what that displays is that we've lost sight of the fact that we are not perfect, that there is sin in our lives that we daily need to bring before God and that our hearts not perfectly aligned to the creator of the universe and that there is always work to be done in the Christ follower's life and heart. 1 John says, or, yeah, 1 John 1 says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. A bit later, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. How do you know that you stop listening to the words of God in your life? Is when you stop believing that there's stuff that is in you, sinful stuff in you that needs God's work. You see, every single one of us is on a journey of becoming more like Jesus. And as I've said, none of us arrive until either we breathe our last breath and go and be with him, or he comes back and gathers us home. And in that moment, perfect alignment to the heart of God. Before then, a constant journey of obedience and following God. You see, I think the more awake and mature a Christ follower is, the more they realize how much journey is still before them. Have you noticed that people who actually know something about something are incredibly humble? You know why that is? Because they'll go, hey, this topic, I know a lot about it, but because I know a lot about it, I've realized how little I actually know about it. And the more you, you, the more you start to gain knowledge, the more you start to realize how little knowledge you have. And I think it is the same for a Christ follower. The more you start to move forward in maturity in Christ-likeness, the more you start to realize how far you've still got to go. But a sleepy Christ follower says, I'm, I'm okay. And I think we fall into this place when we grow comfortable with our idols. When we, we grow comfortable with, our, with the disconnects in our heart between our heart and God's heart, we start to make excuses for them and we stop having faith that the Word of God demands us to, to grapple with these things, to lay these things down. And weeks and months and years can go by before you've actually grappled with any real disconnect in your heart. Or weeks, months, and years can, can go by and the Word of God hasn't actually challenged you in any significant way. This is what it means to be a sleepy Christ follower. It's a place where we slip into knowledge versus obedience. I know a whole bunch of stuff, but I'm not going to do it. You see, I think so many of us think that God's calling us to be nice, good people. That's the primary call on a Christ follower, be a nice, good person. You can be a nice, good citizen and be a citizen of the wrong kingdom. Because the primary call on the Christ follower is not to be nice and good. The primary call on a Christ follower is to be obedient to Jesus and follow him. Then you can't be a part of the wrong kingdom or following the wrong king. Knowledge is not enough. The call on the Christ follower's life is obedience, to follow the ways of God. You see, we can also get familiar with God and grow apathetic instead of hearing and responding. I challenged the morning meeting just because there are a lot of people who are ahead of us in the morning meeting. 
And there's some people who are ahead of us in this meeting. We won't point them out. Um, <laughs> I wanted to, but I'm going to bite my tongue. Okay. And I said this, that sometimes I sit in the morning meeting and what happens is after the morning meeting, some seasoned people will come up to me and they'll go, yo, what a great message, Ian. The evening meeting really needs that one. <laughs> and I said to them, you know what? If what you mean is that was such a deep, challenging message, it cut me to my heart and I have been spending this whole time repenting and I can't wait for the evening meeting to get it, that's amazing. But if what they mean by that is, flip, that evening meeting, they really need to hear this, then there is a real problem. And what I said to them is that the same obedience and passion that a 20-year-old requires is the same obedience that a 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 89-year-old requires. And in fact, I put it on them, and I'm saying this to you for a reason. I said to them, you know what? It is actually more important that the older you get, your passion and your obedience increases because you will go through moments in life where you have children, where you have job opportunities, where you, where you might be fighting difficulty, pain and suffering. You have opportunities to obtain wealth. You have opportunities to travel the world. And throughout all those moments, you are choosing, is Jesus worth being obedient to and following? What will grab my passion? What will I give myself to? And an 80-year-old who's been through all those things and is still saying, he is worth it. He is worth it and he is still passionate and he is still declaring the message of Jesus because he believes through all of life that the most beautiful thing that he stewards is the message of Jesus is what everybody needs is an incredible encouragement to those of us who are in our 40s and those of us who are in our 20s. The same passion, if not more, is required throughout life. And what I hear from people in the, closer to this generation is I will get obedient later. I will get obedient later. It only gets more difficult. It only gets more difficult to be obedient to Jesus. And what's gonna save you is when you see him for who he is in the, the youngest possible years of your life, I hope that something on my little two-year-old raising his hand is something of the glory of God descending on that boy. Because when the glory of God descends on us from a young age, what it ignites in us is our souls and we start to see the bigness of who God is and it, that passion can grow into a fire that is unrelenting that makes it easy to say no to everything else that would try to grab hold of our passion, our desires. Don't let Elon Musk <laughs> be your hero or whoever else who represents idols and opportunities in this life. Look for people who are ahead of you who are passionate about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, and who are living passionate, obedient lives, radical lives of obedience, who are ahead of you and are still saying, it is worth it, he is worth it. Let them be your heroes. That's been getting me all day. I feel quite passionately about it. I'm not angry, I'm passionate. I want us to get this. And it's really sad. It's beautiful in one element, that those people who are furthest from God are responding to God. That's beautiful. I love that. That's how God works. But it is really sad that it is the people who are closest to God who are responding the worst to God. What is going on there? 
And it is the people furthest from God in this story that actually are showing the people, Jonah, closest to God, how it is that we are meant to respond to God. And this is where we're gonna land. How do we respond to God? What do we learn about responding to God from the story? One, they believe God. It's an act of faith. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They actually believe that God is who he says he is, but not only just who he says he is, but they also believe what God says about them. We are evil, we are violent, and we need to change. There's a belief in who God is and the message of God. The second thing we see in how to respond and hear God's message and word appropriately is that they acknowledge acknowledge their disconnect from God's ways. Verse five, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Sackcloth is an act of humility and mourning. They go, you're right, God. You're right. We have acted evil, evilly and we should have in evil ways and we should have genuine sorrow in our hearts. And they mourn and they weep and they are sorrowful before God as they realize the disconnect in their hearts to the creator God. Their fasting is an act of turning, turning dependence off of themselves and onto God which is why the king says, and let them call out mightily to God. God, we are sorrowful for our sin and our evil. We need you. You're our only hope. And they surrender themselves in humility to God and throw themselves on God in repentance. And then they turn from their evil ways. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violent that is in his hands. And it makes sense that if the message of God has come and we've responded to the message of God in faith and we believe God, who he is and what he says about us, and we've seen our sin and our rebellion against first and foremost the holy God and then each other, and we see the sorrow that that deserves and we felt the genuine sorrow and grief of what it is our sin has caused and done and what it means, that the next natural step would be, I wanna turn away from these acts of death and I wanna turn to the ways of life in God, and there's a, there's a turning from behaviors. There's a turning from these actions towards the ways of God. We're starting to see what it means to respond appropriately to the word of God. And then four, final, let go of control. Verse nine, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is probably the most powerful indicator of whether repentance in your life is true repentance, is when you let go of controlling the outcomes. When you go, God, I've done these things. I'm so sorrowful for these things. And there's nothing in your sorrow, there's nothing in your grief, and there's nothing in your throwing and crying out to God that is trying to manipulate and control God and manipulate and control the outcomes. God, you do what you will do. If you're gonna overthrow the city, you overthrow the city. I'm, st- I'm not controlling outcomes anymore. That's true repentance. You are who you say you are, I trust you. I think we can see repentance as like God slapping us on the hand every time we need to repent. And that's a terrible way of viewing repentance. 
This way of responding to God is God's gift to us, which frees Christ followers from having to be perfect in this life. You see, repentance is the gift that God gives us that says, you can do this whenever you experience a disconnect in your heart. Whenever you know that you have sinned and fallen short of me, you can respond in this way, in such a way that it doesn't damage relationship with me and you can encounter my power in your life. That's why Augustine, our great African theologian, says all of the Christian life is one of repentance. He's not saying that as a negative thing, he's saying that that's a gift. And we don't have to stay in our sorrow. We don't have to stay in our disconnect. But that through repentance, we can find restored relationship with the Father. And yes, once we're saved, we're always saved. But this is the way that we grow and mature into Christ-likeness. Repentance is a gift. I'm gonna ask the band to come up. I don't know what the time is, but we're gonna sing one response song. We're gonna go a bit over, sorry. Um, And as the band comes up, I've got one question for us. Was Jonah right to be angry at God for saving the city of Nineveh? Is it not in an act of injustice that God allowed Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, not to be destroyed? No. And the reason that it's not an act of injustice is because of the person of Jesus that Jesus stepped into human history, God himself, and went to a cross. And there was a moment at the cross where Jesus said, God, will you relent? God, will you relent? In the garden before he would be hung up on a cross, he cries out, Father, can you take this cup from me? Which is Jesus saying, Father, can you relent from the, the sorrow and the pain and the fullness of your justice being enacted on me? Will you relent, Father? And the Father says, I will not relent. I will not relent. And the next day, Jesus would go to a cross and the fullness of our sin, the fullness of its weight and its sorrow would be unrelentingly placed on the person of Jesus. And He would experience the fullness of God's justice, unrelenting justice. He would experience separation from the Father and He would experience the punishment of the cross as an act of justice so that every single person who hears this message could experience God relenting in their life. And like the city of Nineveh, we could cry out and go, God, we are wrong. We believe you. Would you relent? And in his delight, he says, I will, because I did not relent to my son. That's the message we go with. It is a message of hope, it is a message of joy, and it is a message that the world and people in your life need more than any other message. The unrelenting love of God towards undeserving people. Let's stand and respond.